Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Good evening, Joel. Howdy, Rabbi Eric. How are you on this Sunday evening? We missed our Thursday morning, and I think you need to tell the world some well, of what's going on. I'm impressed, frankly, that we're recording only three days later. I'm impressed with both of us. But, uh, you know, Aaron, my son Aaron uh, is in daycare, my seven-month-old, and uh, one of the staff members tested positive for COVID. And so... Uh, both infant classrooms are closed for two weeks and we're kind of self-imposed quarantine. All in all, things could be so much worse and, you know, families certainly have had to suffer worse. Uh, but I will tell you, two weeks alone in your house, seeing no one but your spouse who you dearly love and your infant who you dearly love is not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> You're saying this to people all over the country who feel like they've been almost there for 10 months now. So we are with you, buddy. We are with you. Absolutely. We totally feel that. I don't know about you, but I'm imagining uh, we are all feeling some true COVID exhaustion. And I pray that the exhaustion doesn't win. We hold on and stay masked a little bit longer until 60-some-odd percent of the of the nation is vaccinated, at which point the true immunity starts to have a big impact. Well, hopefully we're we're on the right track toward that. Well, we've done some cool episodes so far talking theologically and, and having to talk about some of the politics, because when we started this was November of 2020, and it was one of the craziest political months for our nation in a really long time. But I don't think that was our perfect way and vision of how to start. We really wanted to let listeners get introduced to us and get to know us as individuals, how our how we found ourselves as professional clergy and how we found our ways to be uh, buddies and colleagues with one another. So today's episode, friends, is to let you hear a little bit more about these two guys who are trying to do this religion podcast with one another. And we're going to start with Rabbi Linder. Why in the world are you a rabbi? <laughs> there are some days I ask, ask that myself. No, I <laughs> I absolutely love, I, I'll say both my job and um, I won't use the word calling, which we may get into, but um, path, although that might sound pretentious because it is more than a job. And, um, but let, let, let's start with the actual question that you asked. So I, I grew up, in what I would call a very typical Reform Jewish household. So Reform Judaism, um, for those listeners that don't know, is a branch of Judaism. Uh, it's the most common branch in America, but interestingly, it's the most uncommon outside of America. Uh, in America, it has approximately 1.5 uh, million adherents, uh, that belong to, I, I think the number is about 1,500 uh, congregations that are affiliated with the reform movement. And we joined the synagogue when I was entering third grade for a very common reason. And I see this all the time in, in my synagogue here and my previous one in Omaha, which was my parents wanted me to have and become a bar mitzvah, uh, which is when 
a student is 13 years old and they leave the service and read chant from the Torah, prepare a sermon and deliver it to the congregation. It's, and, and it's a major life cycle event milestone. And uh, at the time, my dad had left conservative Judaism. Um, and if I remember correctly, he saw some practices uh, that were distasteful to him, no, most notably that during the high holidays, which uh, are the holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, those are the busiest days of the year when congregants kind of pack the pews, so to speak. It's like the Easter and Christmas of Judaism. And many congregations sell tickets um, because, first of all, there's not enough seats to let every Jew in. Um, usually there is for to let the members of the synagogue in, but not necessarily every Jew in the community. And lots of sitcoms have made you know bits of this from uh, I certainly um, oh my gosh I'm blanking Larry David. <laughs> uh, Curb your enthusiasm. My gosh. Um, there's a great scene about him selling ho high holiday tickets. Anyway, um, there was also a, a custom of some synagogues that would sell congregants basically the best seats in the house. And uh, my dad found that distasteful, as I would, and certainly not something I would do. And um, it wasn't until I was in third grade that he really kind of wanted to go back to it. Uh, my mom, who is Jewish and was born Jewish, um, didn't grow up going to religious school. It was at a time when women kind of um, didn't do that so much. Uh, it was later on in life that my mom actually had an adult bat mitzvah, um, well into her 50s, which was wonderful. Uh, but long story not short, I went to Hebrew school um, and it was fine. I wouldn't say I took to it. I wouldn't say I hated it either. It was fine. Uh, I did find uh, a voice in the choir. I've always loved music, uh, and I was in the children's choir, and I liked participating in that way. But it really wasn't until I was in high school and in youth group that something clicked. And really, when it really clicked was uh, I was a senior in high school. I am an only child. And all of my friends, my Jewish friends up to this point had spent many summers at a camp in our region of the Southeast, actually very close to where I am now in Athens. It's in Cleveland, Georgia. It's a summer camp called Camp Coleman, affiliated with the reform movement of Judaism. And I was always too scared to go, too shy, too socially awkward, too whatever, didn't want to go. And then when I turned 18, I decided to go as a counselor for the first time because quite frankly, I was scared of going to college and having that be my first experience kind of living on my own. And so I kind of wanted a transition of sorts. And it was it's interesting because it was not an easy summer for me. I wasn't a good counselor. I didn't fit in socially. I certainly didn't fit in with the dating scene uh, there. But something grabbed me and, and looking back, and then I ended up working nine summers there. I go there now as a rabbi in the region, which is absolutely wonderful. But one of the things that, that really grabbed me and continues to was it really highlighted that religion is best lived. And it, it's, it's not an obvious, it's not a unique thought by any means, but it's something that I really experienced, namely, that religion is lived through normal day-to-day -day living. It's not, you know, it's not esoteric studying, although that can be a part of it. Um, 
but it's playing sports on the field with your friends and how do you divvy up the errands in the cabin and and all of those sorts of things. And it was just all of life, you know, camp, for those of you who ever went to a sum, summer camp, it's kind of a microcosm of life in some ways. Um, and it was all encapsulated under this rubric of Jewish living. And uh, shortly after my first few years there, I started taking some, co- some classes at University of Florida, uh, most notably a class on Jewish mysticism. And that was when kind of the intellectual piece of Judaism really clicked with me. And I was just fascinated to see how a 4,000-year tradition could still be relevant, how we make it relevant, how we interpret text, how we debate, all of these things. And so when um, becoming the backup jazz saxophonist um, for, uh, you know, someone didn't work out, (laughs) I started college as a music major on saxophone, Um, rabbinical school really kind of uh, became an option for me. And then it became the option for me. And that's basically where we are 15 years later. Thanks for, for sharing those pieces. I, I haven't heard that story from you with those kind of details. It's very common for youth to have either a, a bend in towards their religious questions or a bend away. And, and you'll see them get curious and have other friends who are curious and it sparks something in them or you'll see them like really not have a community. I'm, I'm glad you had one. What were Absolutely. what were the conversations and the questions that were interesting to you as a youth from your tradition about God and, and God's people? Yeah, I w- I've always been interested, and this remains today, of the blending between history, myth, story, truth, uh, and there we go back to the topic we've been covering. Um you know, conversations about whether the Bible's true, whether the Torah's true, that sort of thing. And so I would often ask questions in Hebrew school, you know, did Noah really exist? Did God really flood the earth? You know, that sort of thing. And and actually, my, my new takeaway is, is what you said in our last episode was, uh, I think if I'm quoting you right, a teacher of yours said, it doesn't matter if the snake spoke, it matters what the snake said. And so I've been thinking about that a lot. But, th- but those are the sorts of questions uh, I had and, frankly, still do have. And some people imagine those of us who become professional clergy as more holy or more religious or something like that. What, what have you sensed about your, your path through the official gatekeepers and examinations and in order to become a professional clergy? What did you sense about yourself that is, gosh, uh, okay, unique or really called to this, if we're going to use that word, versus, yeah. gosh, just like everybody else. And I wish they would see and remember that too. Yeah, I mean, there's so much there, Joel, and, and I'm sure this resonates, you know, in your journey too, or I would imagine it would. But, you know, I think the best, it, not just clergy, but at any job, have a sense of, you know, the imposter syndrome, where it's like you can't believe that you're doing this. And, and even... Um, I think this is my 15th year being a rabbi that people still, you know, just call me Rabbi Linder. It's like, are you talking to my uncle? <laughs> my, my uncle is a rabbi. Um, 
So I, I think there there's an element of that. Um, but I also think it, it's looking at who you are, at what what unique strengths can you as an individual, as someone who wants to be clergy, bring to a community? And, you know, we, my friends and I joke that finding a synagogue is very much like, you know, courtship of dating or of marriage, where it's not just a question of, are you a good rabbi? Is this a good congregation? It's, am I the right rabbi for this congregation and vice versa? And so, um, I'm not sure if this is exactly what you asked, so feel free to jump in again. But for me, I think something important that I try to bring to the table is is certainly a sense of warmth and humor and like what we're doing on our podcast, a a healthy dose of, you know, keeping it real. Um, but, But more importantly, even elevated over that is making Judaism relevant or helping to facilitate the relevance of Judaism. Whether you're a a kindergartner who's learning about these Bible stories for the first time or someone 80 years old who who perhaps grew up in, you know, a more conservative or orthodox upbringing and knows the prayers and knows the stories, I I feel like that is one of the higher... um, callings of what I do as a rabbi. It sounds like you re-entered the, a synagogue around third grade. You went through your bar mitzvah as a, a young teen. You had your, your camp experience and some college experiences. Are there other critical points on the path that really stand out beyond those youth years? Well, it, it is, it's relevant to youth, but a little bit different. I mean, I joke about this now, but I remember it vividly. You know, I, I had a little bit of a hard time, as I as many do as, as teens. Uh, part of it was just kind of being socially awkward and, you know, being a late bloomer and those sorts of things. But I legitimately remember being like 16, 17 years old, standing in the garage of of our house in South Florida, looking at my bar mitzvah certificate, which of course tells me I'm an adult in the eyes of Judaism, and thinking, I'm not an adult. Like I like what like there nothing happened. And so it's it's kind of like the um the sacred and the profane. It's it's like having these profound life cycle events and moments. And even as a 13-year-old, I I did feel that my bar mitzvah was special, even as a child. And at the same time, it was like, it's not like I'm any different the next day than I was the previous day. And so kind of thinking about how the stories that we learn and the stories that we live, how they change us, but how they change us gradually. And it's not always a, you know, a one-time event that we can point to like an epiphany. And what are the surprises about being a, a rabbi now that you're on the other side of the curtain, right? You're the you're the wizard <laughs> now behind the curtain. Uh, you used to know what it meant to be a rabbi, but it was from this side. Now you're on that side. What are the surprises? What is way harder or what is way easier about being a rabbi than, than you knew before you were one? 
Right. Well, it, it's I, I always joked I was single for a while, uh, both as a rabbinical student and then my my earlier years being a rabbi and that dating as a rabbi or I, as any clergy. And I, I had single Christian clergy friends. You know, it's like, are you allowed to drink? Are you allowed to date? Can you kiss? Can you, you know, so like all of those kinds of questions. Um, but, you know, there's various opinions on this. Um and I think you have your own too, but I, I've found it easier to be friends. And I mean, genuine friends with people in my communities that I've served than I would have thought given things I've heard from other people. I mean, absolutely boundaries are important. And at the end of the day, my primary role is rabbi, 100%. Um, but that has been one of the nice surprises, especially here in Athens where you know, I'm not in a New York City or a Chicago where there's dozens of rabbis like I, you know, so um, that is a nice surprise. And it also, I, I have found and may, maybe you could speak to this, but people. So I, I had a professor who was hysterical. I mean, he would, he would make all these aphorisms, usually in Yiddish, and he would say, you know, when you go out there in the real world, oh, and I should back up, this was a professor that was a rabbi of a synagogue for like 30 years before he became a professor. So he really got it, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, right? And he would say, when you go out there, nobody wants this formal rabbi. You have to be yourself. Some people won't like you, some people will, but you have to be yourself. And then he stopped and said, unless you're an asshole, then be somebody else. <laughs> but... But I've, I've very much found that to be true is, you know, people want us to be vulnerable, want us to be ourselves. And, you know, I've always thought, how can we expect or how can I expect a congregant or, or a community to be vulnerable with me if I'm not willing to do the same? And of course, there's still, you know, there's gray areas there and intricacies. But um, but but that's something I, I found. Judaism has a, a unique perspective of the world's religions in that you are, it is a practice, and it's, it's also kind of like a birthright in some ways. You're born into it, and some people never practice it but are born into it, and others weren't born into it but try to practice it. Um, what, what is it like for you to navigate those, those uh, pulls of Judaism, even the term Israel has a lot of baggage on it, uh, oh, yeah. whether it is the scriptural term or the sociopolitical term, right, the national term. Uh, and I wonder what it's like for you to be the, the translator of, of all <laughs> those terms for your people and, and how they look to you and what happens when they disagree with you yeah. or what is that like? So you're asking better questions than I was asked on job interviews. My goodness, <laughs> this is really, really uh, on the ball here. You know, for one is it's always interesting what people think that I either want to hear or don't want to hear. So, you know, I, I may talk to a congregant that I haven't seen in the temple for a while and they'll kind of sometimes double over themselves, apologizing, oh, we're such bad Jews. We haven't been to temple in so long. And I don't want to say I don't care. Like I like, but the the standpoint that I care from is that I like seeing them, not because I think, oh, you're members and you never come. I mean, first of all, I always say to people, there are many ways to be active in congregational life. Coming to services is one way. 
Um, and we always talk about the Torah being a tree of life and there's various branches. They all lead to the same place. We say they lead to peace. Um, but there's many, you know, th th there's many ways to get there. Um, so th that, that's always a, an interesting part of it for me. And also, um, certainly in Athens, this is interesting, is that because we're the only congregation in the town, we have members here that grew up in other streams of Judaism. And so we have some members that in some areas of Jewish life, they are more observant, according to Jewish law, than their rabbi is. And so, and that, that's been kind of an interesting dynamic. Hmm. I can imagine. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of some of the lunches and dinners we've shared, and we won't get specific <laughs> about that, but... <laughs> right. Well, becoming a rabbi in some ways, or becoming the professional clergy, you become the mouth, the avatar, the uh, the representative of all things Jewish for people who are either in your community or Jews who are not participating in your community or other religions who just, well, we should probably get somebody from the Jewish congregation, the rabbi. What is it like to be that the uh, the avatar Jew for all of your geography. I'm just picturing myself as this eight foot tall blue alien in Avatar talking about Judaism now. Yeah, I mean, I am always very clear to point out, uh, especially if it's if someone asks a question like, "What do Jews believe about life after death?" Something maybe you know could be a topic for one of our conversations. It, it runs the gamut. I mean, I could tell you what this rabbi believes. And so I, I really try and make that very explicitly clear. And it's one of the reasons why I love taking our high schoolers to New York um, during their confirmation trip when they're in ninth and 10th grade, because one of the things we do is on Friday night, we go to a synagogue and on Saturday morning, we go to another synagogue. And not only are, do I intentionally pick places that do things very differently than we do in Athens, but I also pick at least one place that's not reform. Because um, even though the, these kids may end up being reformed Jews their whole lives, um, it, it, is, it is a branch of something larger. And I, as wonderful as I genuinely believe our community in Athens, Georgia is, it is one flavor of one denomination of an incredible tradition. Uh, and it, it would be a travesty if that's all they experienced. And so I, I try to be very explicit about that. I encourage congregants to go to Chabad from time to time or now online. I mean, so many synagogues have online services now, including ours. Um, so yeah, I think that's important, especially being the only congregation, the only rabbi. With Chabad being the uh, campus ministry over on University of Georgia, uh, that's that's there. Uh, of all the strains and stripes of Judaism, it, it sounds like you were brought up in the Reformed zone, and you've stayed reform. Reform. That some for some people, it's a very big pet peeve. I, I do correct people because the 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 idea actually is significant because the idea is that we are constantly reforming. It's not something that happened. We are actually still doing it, is the idea. 
remind me to tell you so it, well let's just do it now um one of the reformed theological mottos is uh reformata semper reformanda which translates to reformed always being reformed uh so it's it has there was a a um an immediacy to it when it started and there's a process to it um, at the same time. So I love that the, I never knew about that resonance. Uh, of all the possible stripes and, and paths in Judaism anyway, why did you stay at this one? And what was it about the others that tempted you, but no thanks? And what was it about <laughs> this one that felt like home, but sometimes is awkward? Sure. Well, to some degree, it's what I was brought up in. And and that, you know, I, I don't know that that is a powerful answer, but it is the truth. I mean, just as, you know, English is my mother tongue and I can never not think in English, no matter how many languages I learn or try to learn. Not that I know that many. Um, but I also, I, I do comport to reform Judaism's uh, basic tenets, which in a very small moment are... Firstly, um, acknowledging modern life. And what I mean by that is acknowledging where we at, where we are at morally, spiritually. And so taking things like uh, the Me Too movement, for example, and incorporating um, uh, the word is escaping me, Joel. Oh, my goodness. It's not it's actually not the bourbon. It's just the <laughs> long day. It's not the bourbon at all. The truth is, the more that I learned about Reform Judaism, both as a kid and teenager and into my adulthood, the more that I found myself in alignment with what they slash we stand for. And I think most notably is gender equality. And um, for example, we were the first major political, major religious movement to take a political stance on same-sex marriages in terms of being able to do them, uh, taking a stance on allowing um, people who are uh, gay to have full rights and responsibilities as Jews and clergy, no difference. Um, so that that is a major, um, that, that is something I think on with pride, that I, I don't know that I could belong to a tradition that didn't do that. Now, one of the reasons we can do that from a, a theological base, is most Reformed Jews, myself included, do not necessarily believe that God wrote the Torah. And one of the things that we are tasked with as Reformed Jews is to sometimes, and it, it's a serious responsibility, and sometimes I think it, it, it on the one hand, you could do it just through, sure la through sheer laziness, but it's meant to be a really strong responsibility is possibly abrogating something the Torah says for the sake of morality, equality, ethics. And so, you know, I'll use the famous or infamous verse from Leviticus, a man shall not lie with another man. I'm not going to say the Torah doesn't say that, right? It's, it's, there, it's there. That verse is there. Um, but as a Reformed Jew and as a, as a rabbi in the Reform movement, I can say we are not going to follow that. I am not going to follow that. And so, of course, that becomes a tension. How do you decide what to follow? Where's the authority? I mean, that, 
that could spawn a whole number of questions about theology and whatnot. But from the standpoint of how Reformed Judaism works, um, that that's an example of of kind of how you know it in action with that the tension of something four thousand years old that we may not agree with anymore. Um, one of it, one of our catchphrases is choice through knowledge, and so the ideal, which doesn't always happen, is that we have knowledge about these things from history, from Torah, from Jewish law, and then we make a choice. Will you keep kosher? Will you wrap tefillin? Will you celebrate Shabbat? Those sorts of things. I, I guess your journey into being a rabbi, it, it included also now getting married, having a child. Does that change your perception of your calling? Does it, what does it feel like to now watch your son enter the same path, or a similar one at least, that you started so long ago? Oh, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, I completely broke down during my child's baby naming when a, a good friend of mine led the baby naming, just as I do for congregants. Of course, I cry when I do it for congregants, too. So who am I kidding? Um, wh what's interesting, and um, my wife, who is a psychologist, and I talk about this all the time, is I don't know that I feel different, but I do feel that it gives a sense of Legitimacy is not the word I'm looking for, but um, because so many of my congregants are parents, for example, it, you know, it, it's something now that I am able to relate to where I wasn't before. And, you know, I know and, and this is true for all young clergy. It's like, how how can we give marital advice if we're not married or if we've only been married, you know, a few years out of seminary? Or how can we do a funeral if we've never experienced a tragedy in our families? And, you know, I mean, that to an extent, that's what we're trained for, which goes back to an earlier question. By no means am I holier than anyone else. And Judaism is interesting in that we we really aren't gatekeepers. You know, I, I joke with my congregation, you don't need a rabbi to lead services. You don't need a rabbi to do a wedding or a funeral. I love my job. Don't get rid of me. But you don't, you know, according to Jewish law, you don't need me the way in Catholicism, for example, you need a priest to serve as intermediary. That That is one major difference. Thanks for sharing all that, Eric. That's It's helpful to get to know uh, how... How you got started, the the bumps and uh, and cool spots along your trip, and uh, I feel caught up with you where <laughs> in and, the present now. You know, one thing I think about a lot is the comparison of our jobs with other jobs, especially with this whole with this theme, because I I can't think of a single clergy that I know who, when they went into interviews at places, were not asked basically what you're asking me. You know, what made you become a rabbi? What made you become a pastor? And I don't know that that's true. You know, when my wife interviewed to be the clinical psychologist at, at, uh, at UGA, I mean, they certainly asked her a very intense amount of questions, um, but it's just different. And I don't I don't know what it is or what it might be about clergy. I mean, people generally are fascinated with this. I mean, I, you know, on all those first dates I went on in New York, I, I would get asked this also. Um, and it's like, you know, enough about me, enough. Like, tell, let's talk about rock bands or, you know, what, what movies you want to go see. But um, 
it is it, it, it's an interesting thing because um, one other thing I want to add, I, well, I'm really rambling here, is this whole thing with calling. I, most of my career, I've been very intentional of not calling it a calling because for me, that implies some sort of um, not a powerlessness, but that it wasn't entirely in my control. And, you know, I, I, there are so many jobs and careers that are wonderful, have dignity, give, give help to the world, right? I mean, I think both of our wives are in careers like that and so many people we know. All the, all the people who are first responders during this awful pandemic, I mean, you know, talk about being holy, right? And so I'm hesitant to kind of hold clergy above that. And frankly, I, I don't. Um, but sometimes people do, and there's just kind of an interesting tension there. I don't know. I think that's right. That it, all uh, there's a, a section of Paul where um, it, he talks about all people being called and their different gifts, but all the gifts are important uh, as like members of a body, like parts of a body. Every body part has a certain role that it plays in order to make the body whole and function, and and all of those are callings, right? Some some are legs, and some are arms, and some are other pieces, and and he even goes so far as to say, and and the arm can't say to the leg, "I don't need you," right? Uh, you do <laughs> need all the other parts. Yeah, I love that. So love that story. there's a a part about calling where if we're going to talk about it, and I try not to shy away from it now. But I just don't let it be something that is a privilege of clergy. It is a universalness. Uh, there's universality to it anyway, where all people are called to follow this God and to help bring in God's kingdom. Uh, and if you're an accountant, fine, right? Do it with integrity, right? Uh, lift, raise your hand in the board meeting and say, I'm worried about the wealth gap in our company. Um, why are our Stockholders and top executives, their pay has gone up 315% over the last 40 years, and our lowest paid workers, their pay has gone up 3%. I, I don't understand. You know, if, And you can have integrity as an accountant in your corporation, working for God, following your call, if you'll speak honestly about what you see. Um, and I hope that the rabbi and the preacher or pastor give you some hints as to when to have courage and and call those moments out. Good talk. Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today. And invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realigionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real. <laughs>